Peace be with you. Happy Father's Day. Uh, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Today we begin a new sermon series through the book of Exodus, as Kyle said. Um, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. The first book of the Bible is called Genesis. Genesis lays a firm and, and really a masterful foundation for everything that follows throughout the Bible. Many of the themes introduced in Genesis continue to unfold all the way through the life of Jesus, the ministry of the early church, and then, and then on to the glorious future that we're longing for and hoping for and that all of creation is groaning for. We see Genesis themes unfolding. In the same way, the story of the Exodus is foundational to the story of the Bible. Exodus chapter 1 actually begins right where Genesis left off. The narrative tells the story of Israel's divinely orchestrated deliverance from slavery for the purpose of serving as God's chosen priestly kingdom in the midst of the nations. But more than that, the story of the Exodus reveals for all God's people, both then and now, what it means to be redeemed by God and what it means to serve Him and worship Him. So, the first half of the book of Exodus takes the form of a gripping narrative. This is the story of Israel's deliverance. From there, things slow down a bit. I think we can admit that. But God blesses Israel by giving, him the, by, by giving them the law. As a kingdom people, God teaches them how to live. As a priestly people, God teaches them how to worship. So, as we begin, let's remember two key things. Number one, the Exodus is our story. This is not the history of some irrelevant ancient foreign nation. This is the history of God's holy nation into which we Gentiles have been grafted. So, the opening chapters of the Bible, the, the opening books of the Bible, are the Ancestry.com of the church. This is our family history. This is our family tree. And number two, the Exodus is for our instruction. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us that the Exodus happened for our instruction. He explicitly invites us to read the story of Exodus and apply the narrative to our lives as 21st century Christians. So, the Exodus is our family history but the Exodus is also our present reality. All right. Before we read from Exodus 1, I want to read from Genesis 50. This is the last chapter of the book of Genesis. Jacob's 12 sons are living in Egypt. One of his sons, Joseph, has ascended to the right hand of Pharaoh. We're going to read from Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In other words, Joseph reminds his brothers that Egypt is not their home. Their hope is not in the land of Egypt. Their future is not in the land of Egypt. God has promised them the land of Canaan. And that's how the book of Genesis closes. Now, let's read Exodus 1, beginning in verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation, 
But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Okay, so the people of Israel have been doing what God commanded them to do in the book of Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. We see that exact phrase in Genesis 1, 8, 9, 17, 28, 35, 47, and 48. Be fruitful and multiply. But Pharaoh starts to get nervous, right? Why? What does he fear? Verse 10, lest they multiply. The people of Israel have already multiplied, and Pharaoh is worried that they're going to continue multiplying. So he enslaves them. He afflicts them and oppresses them. And what happens? Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Oops. Despite, despite Pharaoh's plan to limit the growth of the people of Israel, despite their affliction and bondage, the purposes of God continue to be fulfilled through His people and in His people. His people multiply and spread abroad. Genesis 28, 14. Real quick, God is reiterating His covenant promises to Jacob. Genesis 28, verse 14. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So again, despite affliction and bondage, God's purposes continue to be fulfilled. And more than that, God's promises continue to be fulfilled. Pharaoh cannot thwart the promises of God. The mightiest kingdoms of the world cannot thwart the promises of God. His people continue to multiply and spread abroad. And in so doing, all the families of the earth are blessed. Remember, the people of Israel will be delivered out of slavery in Egypt for the purpose of serving as God's chosen priestly kingdom in the midst of the nations. All the families of the earth will be blessed through them. Hopefully, the, the application here is rather obvious. God is always accomplishing His will in us and through us. Always. Kings and kingdoms may oppose His will and afflict His people, but God will bring His purposes to completion anyway. He grows His people even in the midst of suffering, and sometimes especially in the midst of suffering. Now, that, that doesn't mean we go looking for persecution. 
That doesn't mean we celebrate or ignore the plight of the 245 million Christians worldwide who live under heavy persecution. But it does mean that we can trust God in the midst of suffering. He is always in control. He is always more powerful. He is always orchestrating His divine will. He is always taking what man means for evil and turning it into something good. Once again, Israel's hope is not in the land, not in the land of Egypt. Their future is not in the land of Egypt. As Joseph reminded his brothers, God will visit them and he will bring them out of the land of Egypt. For now, things get worse. In verse 15, Pharaoh intensifies the oppression. He conspires with some midwives to kill every male child born to the people of Israel. But the midwives refuse to go along with his plan. And once again, verse 20, the people multiplied and grew very strong. And so Pharaoh issues a command, not just to the midwives, but to all the people of Israel, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. And it's here that we are introduced to Moses. Moses was the man called by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Moses was called by God to lead the Exodus. But I want to make the case that Moses actually experiences two personal Exoduses prior to leading Israel out of Egypt. Okay? Here is the first Exodus of Moses. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, that's Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, that's Moses' mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So, the first exodus of Moses is actually an anti-exodus. Moses is saved through water out of Israel and into Egypt, out of slavery in Israel into royalty in Egypt. Eighty years later, Moses and all the people will be saved through water out of Egypt and into Israel. Moses' mother and sister could not have drawn up a better plan here. It works to perfection. 
Remember, Pharaoh commanded that every newborn son be cast into the Nile. Well, technically, they obey Pharaoh. Moses is cast into the Nile, but in the end, he is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, who then pays his biological mother to nurse him. Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses because she drew him out of the water. The name Moses means he draws out. It's a perfect name for the baby boy who will one day draw God's people out of their bondage. So, God is not mentioned within these verses, but the narrative makes it clear that he, he is sovereignly, providentially orchestrating these events. God, God saves Moses through water, out of slavery, and into royalty. Okay, the second exodus of Moses, verses 11 to 15. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Okay, so one day... Moses is walking out amongst the people of Israel, looking upon their burdens and taking pity on them. And while he's walking, he sees an Egyptian beating up an Israelite. He kills the Egyptian to save the Israelite, flees, and spends 40 years in the wilderness. This clearly foreshadows future events. When Moses eventually returns to Egypt to lead God's people out, the Egyptians will be destroyed to save the Israelites who will flee and spend 40 years in the wilderness. Now, there, there's actually more to this second exodus, uh, but we'll cover that, um, the rest of it next week. For now, here's the point. Over the course of 80 years, God fashions Moses into an exodus-shaped person. God has demonstrated his sovereign ability to orchestrate exodus-shaped events, which ought to build Moses' confidence when the time comes. When the time comes for him to take a step of faith, Moses will be able to look back on God's faithfulness and say, I I've been here before. God is in control, and I can trust him. And if we learn to make the exodus our story, then we too can look back on God's faithfulness and say, we've been here before. God is in control and we can trust Him. Not only that, but learning to make the Exodus story our story prepares us to encounter the Jesus of the New Testament. The New Testament reveals Jesus to be the greater Moses. Consider the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. This is, this is an overview of Matthew chapters 2 through 5, all right? The people of Israel are facing oppression. An evil king is trying to kill the baby boys. 
Mary and Joseph take Jesus on an anti-exodus into the land of Egypt. Eventually, Jesus departs from Egypt, headed back for Israel. He passes through water at his baptism. He spends 40 days in the wilderness, and he delivers the law of God from a mountain. Like Moses, Jesus experiences multiple personal exoduses. Jesus is an exodus-shaped person, and it's all preparing him for the cross, where he is going to deliver God's people from their bondage to sin and death. His redemption is an exodus-shaped redemption. Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of Christ. That's an exodus-shaped redemption. The implication is that we cannot fully understand the gospel if we do not fully understand the exodus. And because the gospel itself is exodus-shaped, there is much for us to learn and apply to our lives as we study the book of Exodus over the next few months. We, the church, have been given the responsibility of bearing witness to an exodus-shaped gospel. All around us, there are people suffering oppression at the hand of a cruel taskmaster. It's the prince of darkness, the pharaoh of this world. They need to know that the greater Moses has come. There is freedom to be found in him. And and even though it may require living in the wilderness, they're following a God who cares for them and who ministers to them, who's Yoke is easy and whose burden is light. The world needs to know that the God of Israel stands ready to liberate them from bondage to sin and death and then to lead them triumphantly into a land flowing with milk and honey. The world needs to hear about this freedom and that's why we have been formed into a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. We are former slaves humbly laying down our lives to tell others where they can find true freedom. That's the church. I mean, think about this in terms of the sacraments. Jesus gave us two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they are both exodus-shaped. In baptism, we pass through the sea. We celebrate the destruction of our enemies in the floodwaters, but we are born again from death into life. We have been cleansed, we have been purified, and we join this kingdom of priests. At the Lord's Supper, we remember the body and blood of our Passover lamb, which we'll cover in the coming weeks. We partake of bread like Israel in the wilderness. We partake of wine like Israel in the promised land. We feast because we've been set free. So whenever we baptize someone or share in the Lord's Supper, we bear witness as former slaves who have anchored our hope in a more glorious future. Again, the Exodus is more than just history. It's our present reality, and the sacraments usher us into that reality. 
God's people have been liberated. And through us, through our walking in the footsteps of Jesus, God is liberating the rest of creation. And that's why our priorities as the church are exodus-shaped priorities. We are former slaves who have now entered into royalty. And so we stand up for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the enslaved and the migrant and the homeless. We use whatever power and influence the Lord has given us now, and we steward that on behalf of those who have no power and have no influence. That's because we are royalty, but we are also former slaves. Let's learn to reinterpret our circumstances, the good and the bad, in terms of the exodus. We have been liberated, but we are not yet home. We cannot fully understand the gospel if we do not fully understand the exodus. So over the next few months, let's be on the lookout for these themes. Let's learn to make the exodus story our story. And let's become more exodus-shaped than we were yesterday. Because God is in control. And we have been here before. We can trust Him. Pray with me.